all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Good morning. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC and Program Director of the MedPeds Residency Program. Are you frustrated with the lack of communication with your child? Is your child speaking a different language or just ignoring you altogether? Communicating with your children can be challenging at times, but we're hopefully going to give you some tools today to help that out. We'll be addressing communication with your child and family today, and as usual, we'll be taking your questions and comments. We would love to hear from you this morning. You can reach reach us live with those at one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, or send an email to kids at mpbonline.org. Hope everybody's having a great day today. Beautiful sort of uh, late spring day, and uh, amazed that the uh, the summer weather is uh, hasn't quite reached the point that it has in years past about warming up fast. I mean, although I think it's eighty seven degrees for a high today, somewhere around there. Uh, it's certainly humid here in the south already. Uh, you can feel it. You can wear it. Uh, this is one of the few places you can actually wear the weather all day long with you, even if you're inside with that humidity. Uh, but we love it. We love the South. Communication is one of those things, you know, we tend to think about when you take your child to the doctor or if you go to the doctor, that um, it's for some kind of physical ailment. But particularly in pediatrics, uh, we deal with communication problems quite a lot. And I'm not talking about screening for different communication disorders. That's another uh, that's another topic, and uh, uh, certainly that's an important one. But how do you communicate with your children? That's one of the biggest questions and frustrations that patients' families often share with us in the office, and they want to know some tips. And I will, uh, just a disclaimer for the rest of the show, uh, no one technique, no one tool is going to make sense uh, with each individual child. Uh, it may be your preferred tool, but it may not work with all of your children. Every child is a little bit different in how they're wired and how their brain is wired and how they develop. So over time, that can change too. too. So one tool that you use on one child may not work on the other one. And the same tool that you were, that uh, worked on that one child may not work five or ten years from now. So you have to be sort of adept at this. And communicate with them over time. Now, think back, if you can, to when you were a child or when you were an adolescent and the frustrations you might have had speaking to your parents or your family. Uh, This is pretty ubiquitous. I think everybody goes through this and they have their frustrations. It's a normal part of human behavior. And I think one of the fallacies, one of the sort of things that trip us up as parents is that we think that our children, just because they can talk uh, once they learn the language, that they can truly communicate. And communication skills, even for adolescents, are learned behaviors. Anybody can learn these. 
we train medical students and residents sometimes who have uh, maybe picked up some uh, some negative ways of communicating, or maybe they need some better ways of communicating, whether that's bad news or whether that's empathy that they're showing toward a patient or, or their family as they're going through tough times. Those are all important things that can be taught. So all that is, I say all that just because it's important to keep that in mind that these are skills, which skills can be learned. Some people may pick them up easier than others, uh, but really there's, there's a lot of things that you can do to practice this that can be applicable to your kids. So communication is the subject today, and we would love to hear. I know you've got tons of frustrations. So there's probably tons of individuals or families out there that are, are like, I'm at my wits end with my child. This is your chance for me to take a stab at it. So call in today at one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven. Six seven two seven four six four, or if you're so frustrated that you can't get it out verbally uh, on the air, send an email uh, to us. It doesn't have to be received during this hour, and we'll try to get uh, back to you. The email address is kids at mpbonline.org. So what about communication? What makes it so special? Uh, why is it such a big deal? Communication, as most of you probably know, is one of the most uh, common things that parents uh, complain about. It's one of the most common things that adults complain about with other adults. The frustrations that we have in families uh, or with friends or at work, most of the time can be attributable to some breakdown in the communication process. And it's important to sort of know about that process at a very basic level, just to keep in mind what has to happen. So in the communication process, you have really two individuals, but I like to think of it as three. Uh, so the first individual is the giver of the message. So that's the person that has an idea to communicate or something that they want to communicate to somebody else. It may be a question. It may be a, a command if you're talking about something that you want your children to do or somebody else to do. So they have to get that idea out to this other person with a specific idea in mind of what that person should take. So if I was a if you were a general out on the field of battle, you would want your your infantrymen to uh, to know exactly what you meant. So it's not just go charge that hill. It's go charge that hill around the left flank and another unit will come in at the right. So it has to be very specific. Uh, Time might be involved. So those are all things that you have to communicate in a message. And even if it's a very simple one, that has the, the giver of that has to think about that. And it may be, you know, unconscious in the way that we do it. Uh, but but again, you can you can hone these these techniques to make it better. So the giver. Then the next thing, which most people don't think about, is the actual message. And this is more like a code. And there's different ways that we can use this code. So verbal language is the most common one, but there are some other things and ways that we communicate. If you drove to work today or if you're driving home this afternoon, there might be some nonverbal language that is passed back and forth between cars. And you know what I mean. Most of it is negative. Uh, There are signs and symbols that sometimes people use to do different things. And uh, even beyond that, just body language. Uh, is is such an important communicator of ideas and, more importantly, emotion uh, behind that. And then finally, you have the receiver. So the receiver has to take that message that's really the code, and they have to interpret that with all the other signals that they're getting from the giver with the context, with how it's given, and they have to interpret that. 
And a successful communication is that whole uh, process, that one way, and a reverse loop back that they understand that and can act on that. So it's, it's a simple process, but it's also a very complex process. And I mentioned, you know, the differences between verbal and nonverbal communication. You know, one thing we can't do on the radio, of course, is give you the nonverbal communication. Uh, but verbal communication may be a plus for if you're me behind, because I have a lot of nonverbal communication that I give. And uh, sometimes that can be frustrating. But the... Um, uh, the words that we use, the verbal uh, communication that we use is important. But really, as far as the meaning of what we want to communicate, there's been a lot of studies on this, and it, it contributes anywhere from about 20 to 40 percent of the idea. Nonverbal communication really has the weight of the rest of that. And nonverbal cues can be uh, facial expressions. It can be body uh, language and how you stand or how you move. It can be eye contact. It can be the inflection that you use to say those words. So there's all kinds of different ways to convey different things. Uh, so it, that somebody could tell you the exact same thing, go clean your room, but the way in which they do it. And if you think back to your mom or dad, you probably knew those, right? You knew when dad or mom would probably be okay if you delayed a little bit. And then you knew those nonverbals, if they said, go clean your room, that they would give you that meant, I better go clean my room right now. So those things convey much more meaning to us. And for children and adolescents, they pick up on these things all the time, sometimes much better than adults. We tend to lose that a little bit over time, but they are really good at doing that. And if you think about a baby as they're learning their language skills, they really rely on these nonverbal communications so much that that's really their primary language. Their primary language is how are they using all of their senses, the touch, taste, sight, hearing, to process what's going on and without knowing what all these words mean. And really that's their primary language that they're applying to those words. Uh, so nonverbal communication is probably, most people could, could make this, I think you could make this point that it is our primary language in which we communicate. Uh, we mentioned, you know, it's a lot of source of frustration in families um, and adults too. Uh, you know, people may go to, couples may go to counseling and say, we've got problems with money. And after about 20 or 30 minutes, it becomes clear that the problem is not about money. The problem is about communication. So thinking about all these problems and thinking about the way in which we communicate can be extremely important with some of the secondary things that we really want to change. I want to change my child's behavior. I want to equip them in a way that they can they can be successful in what they're doing. I wish they would get better grades. I wish they would do this. Well, the communication aspect of that is so important. And if you, if you don't have a, a good uh, experience with that, then it can, it can really hang up the process. And you probably know about this. So we're talking about communications today in the family and lots of time for your problems. I know you got them. Give us a call this morning at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 Or send an email to kids at mpb, mpbonline.org. We'll be right back after this break.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy, and we're talking about communication this morning. How can you communicate better with your child or teenager or your family? And I have some helpful tools. Hopefully they'll be helpful tools for you. And uh, as we mentioned at the start, there's really not a good one-size-fits-all for all of these. So uh, my intent is that you may hear something and say, ah, I hadn't tried that. I hadn't thought about it that way. Uh, let's think about that and uh, how we can communicate better in our family, or maybe it's a way that you can communicate better as a, uh, as a parent or guardian with your child. Um, lots of time for you to call in with any specifics about that. In fact, we just got an email from uh, Sarah in Columbus who says, My almost nine-year-old daughter has begun to get small flesh-colored bumps on her cheeks, not red or pimple-like, but it does seem to be spreading. Is this pre-acne? Is there a treatment for uh, such young skin? Thanks so much. So rashes are always a little bit difficult on the air, but Sarah, thank you for this. This is common in a nine-year-old. One of the things that we would would normally ask is how long they've been here, but anytime somebody says small flesh-colored bumps on the cheeks, particularly if they're they're pretty small, like I'm saying, you know, I know people don't measure these out, but one to two millimeters, I think about something called molluscum contagiosum, a big fancy doctor's word, but basically this is uh, caused by a virus and uh, it is spread by skin-to-skin contact, which lots of nine-year-olds do that all day long. Uh, it is not uh, something to necessarily worry about. It's more of a cosmetic problem. Sometimes they will itch. And if you really get down and look at them with a little bit of magnification, like a magnifying glass or the doctor might use the otoscope, the thing that they look in your ears with, to look at it, they'll see that it's it's what we call umbilicated, which just means the... the uh, the central part of it looks like it's uh, sort of caved in a little bit, a little divot there. It looks like a little, little small flesh-colored volcano in miniature. Um, it can it can spread. It can be on any part of the body. It can be on. It's most common on the trunk, on the the trunkal portion of the body and extremities. But it can be anywhere. Uh, it tends to go away with time, but it can take a long time. Uh, n- there's not too much topically that can help. I would be a little bit afraid on the face. I'm not sure if your daughter is uh, is light-skinned or African-American or Asian, but sometimes some of the things that we use on the other parts of the body might discolor the skin, so I tend to stay away from that. But I would... I would get somebody, a physician, to look at it first. That's what it sounds like to me. I agree it's a little bit early for acne. If it's truly acne, she may need to be looked at uh, to see if this is uh, early uh, puberty, just because rarely there's some other things, other symptoms that can go along that might you know, that need to be uh, uh, investigated. But this this sounds more like I wouldn't go scrubbing it off. That's not going to help or anything like that. I would get a physician to look at it first. And then to verify what it is, if it is molluscum, there's not much you can do about it. Uh, You just sort of have to wait it out. And sometimes it can be months, sometimes even up to a few years. And I know for a nine-year-old little girl, that that can be traumatic at times, but there's not a good way to get those off. A dermatologist has some different techniques, uh, but of course on the face, there's always a risk of scarring there. Uh, So if, if it's not bothering her, 
I would, uh, after you've sort of verified what it is, I think I'd just sort of move forward. But thank you, Sarah. Thanks for listening, and thank you for uh, for sending us that uh, that question about those bumps on the face. Common thing. Talking about communication, just the components of good communication. And, you know, active listening is a skill that can help open up your child or teen. And by active listening, it's a it's a different way of just listening to them. Uh, very common nowadays just because of all kinds of electronic devices and some of the things we try to teach our kids are good active listening skills. The first thing is you got to set a, a set aside a time to listen. You want to make sure if it's something very important, make sure that you're present in the conversation and devote some time to doing that. So setting some time to listen, blocking out those distractions. If your child says, Mom, Dad, I really want to talk to you about something, put your phone down, um, turn the TV off. Uh, so that you can truly listen to them, if at all possible. The next thing is to, and this is a hard one, this is the one where I have a hard time with as a parent, put aside your own thoughts and viewpoints. So you want to place yourself in the frame of mind of your child. Think like them. Remember their age, the context that it's in. This may be something that you seem uh, seem to think is trivial, and it may be to you, but to them, it's the most important thing in the world. So setting aside your own thoughts and viewpoints and just waiting and listening to your child. Uh, listen then summarize and repeat back what you've heard to them. Sometimes they'll tell you something, and it's not exactly what they wanted to say, and you can repeat back what you heard, and it'll give them time to sort of amend that. Uh, Maintaining eye contact with them as they talk is very uh, important. It shows that you are interested uh, in them as a person. Uh, and accept and show respect for what they're where what they're expressing. So again, giving nonverbals back that might be a head nod, just up and down, or it might be some uh, some verbal uh, reassurance that you're that you're hearing them. Okay, I hear that. All right. Um, and then create opportunities for your child to solve problems. Now, that's that's one that's very useful, particularly for uh, middle uh, middle. Um, school children up through adolescence is to try to give them some strategies, first of all, not just dictating what they need to do, but to ask them, have you thought about what you might do uh, to solve this problem? So what kind of things have you tried so far that haven't worked for you? Uh, And allow them to, you know, and what you're, what you're setting yourself up for here is the child is going to come to you as sort of a mentor, or at least that's the hope that they would do that. But active listening is very important. Let's go to Sue in Beaumont. Good morning, Sue. Good morning. I'd, I'd like to make a comment about sure. discipline. Sure. I was in a, in a public place recently where a lady had two small children, like two and four years old. And I know that's a hard time to start trying to discipline anybody, but she would tell them, stop, come back, quit, don't. And they just ignored her, you know. Right. And I'm wondering, when when did parents become afraid to discipline their children. I'm not talking about slapping them around or beating them or anything. I'm talking about just say when they you say something they know you mean it, you know. Yep. Because like my grandparents, I'm an old lady. My grandparents, I never heard them raise their voice in their life. They didn't have to. It was just this built in respect. You knew if they just gave you a look that you weren't supposed to do something and, and they and then that's why now kids like they, they get to be teenagers and parents wonder why their children won't listen to them. It's because you have to have that respect built in, right, from day one, right. And if, yet, if you say no, that's all you have to do. That's it. That's that's the end of the that's the end of the question right there. No, you can't do that. And okay, so, I mean your friends do it. You're not doing it. But why, why are parents afraid to? 
Yeah, Sue, the children and get respect from them. Right. And Sue, you brought up some good things. Uh, you know, I would will, be willing to bet that your uh, your parents and grandparents, I bet they um, they were consistent. Those are some of the things that we do. You know, if you say, particularly, you, uh, that's an excellent scenario. You know, two and a four-year-old. And by the way, that is not too young to start disciplining. Uh, discipline is something that really what you're thinking about is what is the behavior that you want your child to exhibit. It does have, doesn't have anything to do with whether they're a good or bad child. It's that there are some positive behaviors that you want them to do. Be kind, respectful, uh, all those others. And there are some behaviors that you don't want them to do, and you want to have positive and negative consequences. You want to praise the good behavior. You want to make sure that they understand the gravity of the bad behavior. And there's different ways to do that, and some are more appropriate at different ages. I would be willing to bet, out in the open, out of that, you know, you got a two-year-old and a four-year-old. Maybe mom's tired. She's been to work. She's come home. She's gone to the grocery store or whatever, and she is just at her wit's end. And that's when we, as parents, make those mistakes. We yell at our kids. We'll give them indistinct commands um, you better be good to a four-year-old. What does that mean? They don't know that. They don't know exactly what you mean by you better be good. Uh, if it's Johnny, you need to stop. I want you to stop playing with those cans in the store right now. That's very specific. Uh, you know, of course, if you're tired and if I'm tired, uh, you know, who knows what words are going to come out of my mouth that make absolutely no sense at all. I mean, that's that's being a parent. It does something to your brain where you get brain damage. Um, just just kidding. Uh, but uh, but yeah, Sue, I think those are probably the most common mistake that we as parents make is we're not consistent um, with and we're not concise with with the directions that we give. And generally speaking, these things sort of erupt. And look, a two-year-old and a four-year-old, you know, they they don't call it terrible twos for nothing. And a four-year-old there, too, they might sort of feed off of each other, and they're still pushing boundaries. In other words, they're wanting to know how far can we push mom in this store to get what we want. And so negative behaviors for them might be a form of getting attention uh, and they know that they can get attention from mom if they do that. Um, but the consistency part is key. Now, what is this going to cost the parent? It's going to cost them time, effort. Um, they're going to have to put their emotions on the side at times. And they're going to have to make sure that their children know exactly what behaviors they want. And doing it right then and there rather than, you know, if if mom just blows it off or dad just blows it off, um, in in situations like that, and then you wait till you get home to try to correct some of it. Uh, it's too late. I mean, you can you can rehash that for an older child. For a two year old and a four year old, really can't do that. So Sue, I agree with you. Uh, you know, we you need to be concise. You need to be consistent with the behavior. Never want to belittle the child. Uh, the best person in the in the uh, um, entertainment world, I guess you would call it entertainment, that did, did this well and communicated it well was Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. He told you exactly, you know, emotions were something that you can talk out with your child. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be frustrated, to, to be sad. It's our behaviors that we want to change and communicating that well to children that it's not them that are bad. It's maybe the behavior that needs to be changed. So thanks, thanks for uh, sharing that, Sue. You're exactly right and on track. And you know, sometimes just breaking it down very simply to to families can help. 
Um, speaking of, there are some talking techniques along those same lines that you might want to try. Um, a lot of times, you know, as a parent, and I've done this tons of times, I've said, you need to do this. You need to clean your room. You need to uh, to hurry up or you're going to be late. Um, it, those may be very uh, helpful at times. There may be some certain times that you do that. But if you're having a conversation with your child, it's much better to use I messages rather than you. Uh, so, for instance, if you say, you know, I, I sure have trouble finding things on my desk when they're not straightened up or the, uh, if they're not put back by the last person who used them. Instead of saying, uh, you know, clean up your room, uh, things need to be more, you know, if you can't find your stuff, you could just say, you know, I find that when I can't find things, it's probably because I didn't have it in a, in a logical order. And I've changed that. And this is this is how it helps me. And it saves me time so I can do the things that I like. So it takes a little bit more time to do that. It's a, you have to think about that a little bit more. Uh, but you can say all kinds of things like that. Since I'm so tired, I sure would like somebody to help me clean up the dishes. Uh, give them a chance to really uh, use their skills. You know, uh, Johnny, you sure did help last time when you, uh, you know, I remember last time you were a lot of help when you cleaned up the dishes. I sure would like it if you helped me tonight because I'm feeling really uh, tired. So think about that. Uh, the you messages are like, you ne- you should never do that. You make me so angry. Why don't you pay attention? And uh, honestly, I've said every single one of those. Um, those are things that it, I think every parent gets frustrated. Some of you may be saintly parents, and I want your patience, and I'm envious of that. And parents make mistakes all the time. That's okay. We're human. In fact, your kids need to see that, and you need to own up to it and say, Johnny, uh, you know, Dad lost his temper there, and I said some things that I shouldn't have said. I'm sorry. Uh, did that make you feel bad? How did you feel about that? Um, talking that out with your kids can can really help them understand that it's okay to make mistakes and that you va- that they are valued even though they do make mistakes as a person and that you still love them. Even worse are those put-down messages um, that sometimes we criticize uh, a, a youngster, you know, a, a younger kid, uh, name-calling, ridiculing, embarrassing the child. All these things can be detrimental to them because they internalize so much. When you say, you know, you're, you're really not acting smart here. Uh, even that can be sort of innocuous to a parent, but uh, for a child, uh, particularly if they're a younger child, they, they'll think, well, well, okay, mom or dad thinks I'm not very smart, so I guess I'm not. I'm just not going to excel very well in that. And it's amazing to me in talking to older individuals how small things like that that they remember from their childhood that sort of got internalized. And the parent didn't mean anything by it. They didn't mean anything about that. Consistency, like we mentioned with Sue, is a big one, though. you got to be consistent in what you do. And this is probably the hardest if you have uh, a joint, if, uh, the kids that have joint custody with other parents uh, because you may not have the same parenting styles. And one thing that they may expect with one parent is not what they expect with the other. And it's incredibly important to try to work towards that. Uh, if you're in a divorce situation and have joint custody of the children, uh, that is a big frustration with families. And uh, it's not doing the kids any good to have differences. Some Somewhere along the way, compromise is what you have to do for that. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. We're talking about communication with your kids and family this morning. We'd love for you to call in with a question or a comment that you have. You can reach us this morning by calling 1-877-MPB-RING. 
That's one 672 7464 or email us at kids at mpbonline.org. We'll be right back after this break. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy, and we're talking about communication issues this morning. Frustrations that you might have with communicating with your child or your family. Would love to hear those specific ones from you today. We've been trying to give you some uh, specific techniques that you might can use to try to improve that communication with them, particularly if you're at the frustration point. And uh, that does happen as a parent. I mean, I'm a parent. I have a 17 and a 14-year-old boys, and they certainly, I, I get frustrated sometimes by their behavior. Um, uh, uh, you know, they probably get frustrated with my behavior. So what happens if... You lose your cool um, because that's one that um, that comes up frequently. Like, what happens? What are some ways that you can prevent losing your cool as a parent? And then, what are some of the things you can do if you already did it? Because it'll happen at some point or another. You're going to be uh, tired, fatigued, uh, and uh, things are going to be said that you didn't want to. You didn't want to say. Um, what do you do? There's all, but there, every parent, every, I don't know of any parents, again, they may be some saints out there that don't, uh, have never done this. Um, but th- when they reach the end of their rope of their patience, um, there, there, there are things c- that can happen. One of the things that you can do though, is don't always act in the moment. In other words, if you get so frustrated that you know, those next words out of your mouth or your actions are going to have a negative consequence or things that you're going to regret, Take five minutes. Um, think, you know, make a point about this. Even though for behavior on the spot, if it's egregious behavior, in other words, if it's really bad behavior that your child is um, is doing, you may have to act on it right then and there. There are times, however, when you can wait five minutes if what you're going to say or you're going to do next is not going to be productive. So take a few deep breaths. Uh, wait five minutes before you start to your Uh, start to talk to your child, particularly if they're older, you can do that. Try to find a word to label what you're feeling. So if you're feeling disappointed, uh, say that to yourself and uh, make sure that it's appropriate for your child. In other words, if if you're disappointed in them, you may say, or disappointed in, in what they have done, think about that. Have an internal monologue. Talk to yourself in your mind or get somewhere where you can talk to yourself and um, by the way, you all know you've done this and you see parents talking to themselves all the time out loud. They don't care anymore. They're just talking. I can't believe this. They're not talking to their child. They're just talking about their child. So uh, but do that internally and say, OK, I'm disappointed with the way that you acted in the store. Uh, 
think about how that how that sounds and think about how your child might react to that and so that you can convey to them the disappointment in a way that's productive if it's if you know if it's uh, going to tear them down and not improve the behavior then that's not that's not going to be a productive way of doing it it, this is a big one. Share your feelings with a spouse or a friend, um, particularly somebody who has already been there or going through it at the same time. You need a pop-off valve that doesn't need to be your kids. It doesn't need to be an older kid necessarily. It needs to be somebody who's your peer, which means a friend or a spouse. And um, just sharing those feelings of frustration with them can be incredibly gratifying to you personally because you need that. You can't just bottle all that up and then do the right thing uh, for your child in the way that you communicate. You need to have a way to unleash those feelings. And don't hold grudges. Grudges are, you know, you don't, you, you want the child to understand that negative behaviors have negative consequences. But deal with each one of those on an individual basis, um, or at least deal with the present. Now, if they do things over and over and over again, you may have to escalate what the negative consequences are, but don't hold a grudge toward them. And specifically, don't allow them to sort of predict their future with those negative con- negative consequences. It is not productive for a parent or a family member to say, you know, you're just going to fail at this anyway. I know mom and dad are probably going to be disappointed in you, or, uh, you know, mom, mom's probably not going to like what you're doing. You probably aren't going to be able to do that. I hear this at restaurants a lot of times, like Johnny's not going to be able to stand still. Well, guess what? You just gave Johnny a permission to not stand still or sit still uh, at the table. Now, that may happen, but it's a whole lot easier when they hear that from a parent. They're thinking, Oh, okay. I'm not going to stay still. I can just, you know, I can go full steam now. Thank you, mom uh, or dad. So think about that. Don't hold grudges. Don't give them sort of cues to to uh, or excuses to have that behavior or validation to have that behavior. And look, if you get to the point where you are just cannot deal with the frustration that you're having, and it happens then seek some professional help. There's a lot of good family uh, um, psychologists that can help you. Uh, They can meet with you separately or they can meet with you as a family and try to figure out what's the best way to communicate with your family. Because we all have frustrations. We all get to that point where we need to take five or more. Uh, I can remember sometimes getting very frustrated and going and running 10 miles uh, just to blow off some steam. Uh, so it happens. And, um, and you know, I always when my kids got a little older to the point where they could understand it, I would come back and say, Dad had to take <laughs> more than five minutes. Uh, I, I went and ran because I was frustrated with my, you know, and I had a lot of negative feelings. And that helps me to, to do that because that may be a way that you can equip them to do it in the future. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. We're talking about communication issues with your child or your family. You can reach us this morning by calling one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Had a question, an email here from John. John says, you know, at what point do um, self-centeredness and selfishness uh, change in a child's behavior? In other words, at what point does it um, does it change, and do they not uh, look at themselves so egocentric? Um, that's a good one, and that's also a difficult one to answer. 
So developmentally, all kids by nature are egocentric. Now, you know, people say, well, children are so loving, they're so giving and caring. Uh, they may have some of those attributes, but generally speaking, they think of themselves and they have to learn those socialization skills. Uh, even up into adolescence, those are things that they tend to, um, to, to just think about themselves. Early adolescence, you know, sort of the uh, 9 to uh, 11 or 12, uh, they tend to be egocentric, thinking about themselves. They think concretely. They don't think abstractly that, you know, if I get this, I'll be happy. Instead of if I get this, maybe the family will have to go without something, uh, you know, monetarily. So that's uh, that's that's important to keep in mind. Now, you, you and the other thing is that child, even if they get beyond the point, the maturation point where they, you know, egocentrism sort of falls by the wayside, they may um, get to the point where that negative behavior becomes a tool for them. So you want to be sure that you emphasize the negative aspects of this. Um, you know that this behavior that they're that they're um, self that they're being self centered about that that is not something that benefits them. You have to make sure that it doesn't benefit them. But then also that that's not something that other people are going to see highly. Uh, so it can be very difficult. And just keep in mind if you have younger kids under the age of ten, that can be sort of built into them uh, as a you know, and depending on how many other children you have, the more children you have, particularly those younger ones, they'll be even more self-centered because it's a it's a protection for them. That's the way they they survive in different situations is they're thinking only of themselves. But as they grow older, look for ways to do that. And as they get to, into adolescence, one of the other things that you might think about is giving them opportunities to reach out to others. So community involvement, particularly if it involves helping others. So if you've got people in your neighborhood that, let's say, a storm comes through and, uh, you know, they need some help in there with yard work or they need some help with something else, take your kids with them, with you, and help them. Look for ways that they can help. If your child sees that, an opportunity to help somebody, do whatever you can to try to, to enable them to do that. You know, I've my kids come up with some great ideas from time to time. Uh, don't let those fall by the wayside. If they said, hey, mom, dad, I think it would be great if we could help this family out, look at what they've gone through, follow through on that. Make them, make them uh, feel like that their idea comes to fruition and try to do the best with that because that'll they'll start to see less and less of themselves and more and more of other people and their needs, and it'll make them feel better about themselves, which really self-centeredness and egocentrism, that's what it's really about. They want to feel better about themselves and their self-worth, and you can do that certainly with reaching out and helping to others. Let's go to Kelly at Lost Point. Good morning, Kelly. Good morning. Thanks for calling. Um, my husband and I are raising our 11-year-old grandson. Uh-huh. He has visitation with one of his parents. Who he also has a half brother there. Okay. And when he comes back from his visitation, he is mildly speaking a terror. Okay. Can so you, can, in that situation, he keeps saying, "But I can do this at my mom, yeah. or I can do this at my dad." What do you do? Yeah, that is. I. Yeah, it's difficult, uh, Kelly. That's. Uh, it's. And again, it's because he's got inconsistencies in his in the parenting techniques for both both situations and 
Uh, it sounds like there's probably, I mean, you might reach out to them. I'm sure you have. Um, you know, they at, at times there's really not any leeway that, that uh, families can, can make in those situations toward reaching out to the other, uh, other fam- parts of the family. I, here's what I would do. He's 11. He's, again, early adolescence. He's going to be egocentric. So how does this affect me? That's the way he's thinking. Uh, he's concrete thinking, which means he doesn't do abstracts. Like, this is going to be a life skill that's going to affect other people. No, he doesn't understand that. 11-year-olds is like, right now, what are the consequences right now of what I'm doing and what can I do specifically? Um does he have friends too that he had like a, uh, right now at school or I mean has he got like sort of a, a few good friends that he's hanging out with? Yeah. Okay, that's good too because you can capitalize on that, particularly if if you know them. So finding ways to get to know them it can sort of reinforce some of these behaviors. Uh, I would sit down with him and say, you know, look, we're doing the best job we can to parent you. Things may be di- different at, uh, you know, mom or dad, and I know they do things differently, and that's fine. He's going to be, you're going to be in different situations that think there are different expectations. Every time he has a change in teachers at school, each one of them is going to have different expectations. But when he is in that classroom with that one teacher, he needs to do exactly what they want or what they say, and it's for his benefit. So in your, when he's with you, that's the same kind of thing. I would say, you know, these are the things, and make sure, maybe write them down. You know, these are the kind of things, and be thinking about the negative behaviors, but also emphasize some positive behaviors. These are the things that we want you to, to do uh, and these are some of the things that we don't really think are, are positive. We don't think these are helpful to you to do some of these behaviors. Write them down on a list and uh, and talk about it. And again, if you can have something concrete that will affect him right then, right there, I think it's okay to have differences because, again, in school situations, they're doing the same thing. Different friends, there's I mean, you know, there are some friends that you can say certain things to and they'll take it as, you know, humor. And there's other situations that you can't. So these are skills that he's going to have to learn. He's not going to be thinking about that in an abstract way. I would just try to think about a way as concrete as possible. And, you know, it's to to him blowing it off and saying, well, that's not the way we're going to do it here. Even though that's what you're saying, I would I would emphasize you know, every everybody has different things that they're trying to do to help you. And it is going to be different at their house rather than here. But here, it's to help you. And just like if you're in a different situation in school and you have a different teacher that expects different ways for you to behave, to ask a question, to do your work, whatever, uh, there's going to be differences here. And that'll help. I don't think it's going to alleviate things completely. Um, an 11 year old, again, they're egocentric and they're going to look for ways that they can get what they want. So um, that's just the way they're wired at that time. Later on, it may change, but, you know, making it as concrete and clear and concise as possible for, for him and emphasizing that. I, and writing it down can be very good because you can always go back to that. If you have it somewhere and say, okay, these are the things, these are our expectations. I wouldn't necessarily even say rules because of the way adolescents view that. But that may be some things that you could try. All right. Thank you. All right. Hang in there, Kelly. Y'all are doing the right thing. It's just difficult. Um, And sometimes even within the same family, you can have mom 
uh, that, uh, you know, will let you do one thing and dad that uh, lets you do the, uh, the something totally different. One thing that, that we've done uh, or try to do, at least in our family, is to talk about it. If they ask us, hey, can I go on a date? It's like, well, let me talk to your mom first about that. Let's get on the same page. All right, we're going to take a break, and when we come back to finish our discussion about communications in childhood and adolescence, got a couple of more tips for you today and time for one more call, one or two more calls. If you want to uh, ask us a question, you can call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 We'll be right back after this break. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. I'm Dr. Jimmy. We're talking about communication issues in your family today. What can you do if you're frustrated? What are some of the things you can do to improve the communication in your child or your family and trying to give some tips and techniques that uh, you might can use maybe maybe not all of them but you might pick a few that you might think fits the situation and i uh, got a couple of great calls today uh, already and i'm about to go to rufus in belzona who's called in about uh, about a question or a comment good morning rufus thanks for calling this morning thank you Look, I'm trying to get some help or get some answers about uh, my son had a little episode at school one day, and uh, it's only happened one time. But uh, it seems like somebody's called and made a complaint to uh, the Mississippi Department of Child Welfare, but they want me to put him on some type of medicine. And I'm trying to find out, you know, but they've told me I don't have to do it, but I've got to have people come there and, uh, to my house and and watch the boy for twelve to fifteen weeks. Uh huh. I mean, is, is that necessary, or can you tell me if, how that works? So generally, what I'm trying to say is, when when a kid makes a little episode at school like that one time, is, can they make you put him on medicine? You know, for whatever reason. I mean, I've, I've had to carry him to a psychiatrist, and I right. a psychiatrist. So the psychiatrist uh, said that he probably needs to be on this medication. Is that right? Right. Yeah. But he, he's only seen her one time, and I just I don't I can't see that. Yeah. Well, and you went to that visit with the child. Yes, sir. Okay. So I, went, I go with him every time he has to see somebody. Gotcha. Okay. So the so the question is that you know, can they make you take the medication? Well. Yes and no. So uh, a physician can recommend what they feel like is the best treatment based on what is happening. Now, if it's if you're talking about a medication, you know, there are medications that sort of help with behavior problems. There are no medications that solve all of that because, again, these are skills. But if there is an underlying disorder, if there's underlying depression, uh, anxiety, uh, learning disabilities, ADD, uh, medication can help. It's not the, it doesn't solve all the problems. So there may be a good reason for putting, you know, the, the child on the medication. Uh, as far as what, you know, the, um, uh, 
uh, child uh, welfare uh, officials can do. You know, they they can specify different things to observe different behaviors depending on what the outcome was. You know, I don't want to necessarily get into that, but uh, depending on what happened with the behavior to begin with, they certainly can can mandate that that happens. But if you have you know if you have concerns about the treatment, particularly the medication. I'd, I'd have those discussions with the psychiatrist directly. Uh, nobody else besides that physician can really say, I think that he needs to be on this medication. Uh, but there may be some situations and it may be good and it may not have to be a, you know, long term. So if you have concerns, the first place I would go to was that psychiatrist and just say, hey, how long are we going to have to do this? Is this something that is really needed? Are there alternatives? And they could probably give you some advice about that. Yeah, so they try to give me some alternatives, but my son makes A's and B's at school, you know, and they had, hey, yeah, one grade dropped down to a C, and they trying to tell me because his grades is falling, now they got to put him on some kind of medication, you know, and I, I mean, that's, to me, I think that's ridiculous. Rufus, I'd ask more questions because that's not necessarily a reason in and of itself to, to put a child on medication, so I bet there's something else there, but I'd... I'd get back in touch with them because it sounds like there's there's other information that's not there. Well, that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank all our callers for calling in, and uh, thank you for emails. Got a couple of emails that came in there that I'll try to get to and, and get you the answer uh, later. But Southern Remedy Kids and Teens is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from listeners like you. Today's show was engineered, and our call screener was Jay White. Uh, he does it all, folks, all, all of it. I'm Dr. Jimmy. Uh, you can join us next Thursday at 11 for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. And stay tuned for NPR's Here and Now coming up next on MPB Think Radio. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting.